most people think that they're good people. And when they're at, you know, Boots or CVS or wherever, like the thought that's going through their mind is, well, I want a phenomenal shampoo for my hair. And then we used to have it wrong. We used to scream the charity first and foremost, but someone isn't there to donate, right? They're there to buy a phenomenal conditioner. Like that's the thought process. So for years, we messed this up. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. David Simnick is the Chief Executive of Soapbox. Now, this is a company, a small business, that's taking on multinational consumer goods retailers and winning. And they're on a mission. In fact, they've given away millions and millions of bars of soap around the world to promote hygiene uh, in all sorts of places. In this conversation, we dive into that. Why did David choose the humble bar of soap for his business? How did Soapbox mess up for years, not quite get it right, focus their marketing in the, completely the wrong way before getting the revelation that changed everything? How does David hire in the business? What's the interview question he uses to really get through as to whether people are the right fit? And uh, how does he see his role as chief executive? Great conversation to understand how you can infuse real impact into what might seem on the surface, a bit of a mundane business selling soap. Enjoy this really insightful conversation with David Simnick. David, hi, and uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Richard. So what I get about you is you're an entrepreneur who believes you shouldn't start a company to make money. <laughs> Why is that? Is it, are you just a really bad entrepreneur who's never made any money? What's going on? First off, I already love this podcast. And second, if any of my shareholders are listening, no. That isn't actually the full quote. Uh, I think that, the, yeah, no, right. Uh, the, the thing I really believe in, and having done this for 13 years, and especially as, a, as, a, as in difficult as a vertical as consumer product is, you, the fuel behind that entrepreneur can't be, hey, I want to be rich. Like th those type of entrepreneurs I've seen fail countless times over and over again. And the reason being is, there are better ways to go about making money. There are much more surefire ways to gain capital, to build that type of bank account, if that's what you want to do. So within, within consumer products, you receive so much bad news on a weekly, daily basis that, that the motivation in terms of, it, it can be a part of it. It just can't be the, the actual bedrock of the foundation of why someone wants to do something like that that to me has been so evident for years hmm. it's interesting it's the difference between i think it's the difference between entrepreneurial ceos often and uh kind of professional ceos people who've grown into the role sometimes not always right but there's definitely a theme that most entrepreneurs i think get to a point i think it's hard to survive if you're just doing it for the money 
right? Because you've got to have something that's going to drive you through a, a mission. And your listeners probably already know this, but the, the type of leadership that's needed from zero to 1 million is very different than, you know, taking a company from 25 to a hundred. That's, that's a, and my hope uh, and prayer has always been that I've been able to evolve faster than the company evolves so that I can be the leader and, or the co-founder or the teammate that the evolution, you know, where the company is going. I've actually really enjoyed growing with the company. So we are, uh, we're in the 25 to hundred stage. I'm sorry. Yeah. 25 to hundred million stage, um, which is super exciting, but with that comes a ton of process and a ton of optimization. Um, and you have to let go of a lot of things that you used to have direct control over. Uh, and that's, and that's also a lot of fun because hopefully you're hiring people who are way better at that than you are. And, and you get to step back and see, you know, things that you used to think that you were good at just get absolutely perfected by people who are way better at it than you are. Um, so, so all that and more, like I've really enjoyed that. Um, I think that you know, I've, I've listened to a couple way more successful entrepreneurs than I have tell me that any organization, if you were to simplify it as such, have like three different characteristics in an in a, uh, entrepreneurial organization. There's visionary, there's an operator, and there's a process oriented type of person. Um, a startup needs to have, especially at the zero to one and one to 10, they need a V. Like you need a, you need a big V in there and you can be two letters. You can't be three. So you can be, you know, big V little O, you can be big V little P, you can be big P little V, you know, let, let's not make all the jokes that just came out of that. But anyways, uh, like there's, it, it, it's an interesting mix because the theory behind it is, uh, visionary doesn't necessarily always translate into creating an organized process, you know, forward environment. You don't, uh, yeah, you don't right? say. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Never seen, a, never seen a chaotic visionary in the past. All the listeners right now are just like, oh man, never, never seen that. Never heard that. Oh my gosh. My entrepreneurial leader is so organized. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, um, but I, but I do believe that, and this is where I go against the literature, uh, that I was just referencing is I, I do believe that you can change if, if a leader wants to change that she, he, they can change. So, uh, I, I do think it's, it's really interesting. Uh, well, that point about people, I, I specialize right in people changing and I strongly believe people change, people can change. It's just that most people don't change, <laughs> but that's not because they can't it's because they don't want to. Uh, but when you want to change, if you've got something important, you know, I say, if you want to know, people say change is hard. It's like, well, you give a mobile phone to a. 12 year old girl she will change overnight <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a new habit overnight you know it's like um yeah we're quite good at changing when we want to change and so i think that's key so okay so don't start a company to make money start a company to change something and we started to talk about that that part um but let's talk about you and your journey right so you built this uh, really interesting business soapbox i know you've been on the inc um 500 list uh multiple times, you've, you know, you're uh, one of the fastest growing uh, businesses in your sector, uh, and you've got a bit of a mission behind that. So tell me, like, somebody says, yeah, I want to do things that kind of have a real impact in the world. You know, why soap? It's a great question. Um, so I used to be a subcontractor, like an intern at a subcontracting firm for the United States Agency for International Development, like the lowest of low that you could possibly find yourself on a totem pole. 
Um, and while there, they asked me to look at a bunch of after action reports of how, uh, you know, United States agency of international development organizations or projects were, were doing, you know, implementation work around the world. And in looking at a bunch of WASH projects, which is an acronym for water sanitation hygiene, uh, I saw that there was a need for more focus to be on hygiene because there was a lot of water development projects, but they, they weren't paired with the fact that, okay, cool, you're creating sustainable, clean access to water within this community, but there is no education aspect that after defecation and before meal prep, you need to wash your hands with soap and or clean your body or whatever it might be. What is interesting is that 95% of the world's homes, and this is a dated statistic, but it comes from uh, UNICEF uh, about like about eight years ago. So I need to go double check that. But 95% um, of the world's homes have access to soap. It's not an access problem. It's a cultural issue. So what we do is we go hand in hand with Rotary International or the American Red Cross when there are emergencies or care or the Carter Center or any of these amazing organizations, and we pick up the tab for their soap. And we tried to pair also with boots on the grounds organizations like Sundara or EcoSoapBag or Clean the World, all these phenomenal organizations. And we say, hey, what are you guys doing in terms of an implementation? How can we provide and pay for that soap? And the best thing about all that is oftentimes a lot of the soap is being sourced from the communities that we have the privilege to serve. Now, Richard, why is this important? Let's say you're a soap maker in Northern India. The last thing you want is like awkward Dave popping out of a shipping container and giving the whole community like 70,000 free bars of soap. Why? One, just put you out of a job. That sucks. Two, I also just taught the whole community to wait till like awkward white guy shows up and gives you something for free. So the way that we flip on its head is we work with organizations that already have that community mindset. I believe that the best aid is where you're actually empowering the people you seek to serve and then get the hell out, right? Like, like the whole idea is that in any type of work that we do, we eventually want to see the need for us to be there gone. So let me pick it up. What I understood was uh, that most homes have access to soap, but there's a cultural issue about using it. So in that mind, like why the need to finance soap? I, I thought where you were going to go was we, we run massive education programs or something, but instead you're paying for the soap. So I'm kind of just, there's a disconnect in my mind at this point. First off, thank you for connecting it. Uh, we pay for the soap and the education programs and our cultural programs that all of these organizations run. And the crazy thing is when you, we've seen like demonstrable results, like stupid, crazy results that, um, there's in working with clean the world, underwriting the soap for that. And they then worked in tandem with Rotary International, which has a phenomenal water program worldwide. Two of the most, uh, Eastern provinces of India, we saw a 95% reduction in diarrhea, diarrhea related illnesses for the children that we were seeking within this longitude program. Uh, and then we also saw schools attendance skyrocket. So like. There, it's, it's just crazy, right? Like you would think that, hey, the rest of the world knows that like, you know, before you start making something, you should wash your hands, especially after you defecated, right? Or after you go to the bathroom, you should. But like, but if soap is a luxury, it's going to be used for special moments and or laundry. 
not necessarily for cleaning pots, pans, you know, and or washing your hands after you do something that you do multiple times a day. So, so the interesting, like the, like change, you're not necessarily going to change the economic ability for someone to purchase that, but you can change like how someone views the importance of washing your hands with clean water and soap. So although this is possibly the least sexy thing to talk about in terms of like international development, which is like, like, Hey, soap, <laughs> like it is something that has huge impact and not everything we do is a win. Uh, but most of it is. And the credit goes to our, our partners, our 501c3 charities that are on the ground, uh, doing the sustainable work that's community led and empowerment driven like that. I threw a lot of like, you know, jargon at you and, or like, you know, fun sayings, but like it, it is true. Like that they're doing the work. We, we underwrite the tab that taking us a step even further, Richard, like why? So we got to make award-winning shampoos, conditioners, body wash, liquid hand soap. We have to compete the likes of, you know, Unilever and Colgate Palmolive and PNG and L'Oreal day in, day out. And what we've found over the years is that like the consumer actually doesn't want to buy charity the first time. They want to buy a phenomenal shampoo for themselves. And I don't blame her or him or they for being selfish, right? Like that's most people think that they're good people. And when they're at, you know, Boots or CVS or wherever, like the thought that's going through their mind is, well, I want a phenomenal shampoo for my hair. And then we used to have it wrong. We used to scream the charity first and foremost. But someone isn't there to donate, right? They're there to buy a phenomenal conditioner. Like that's the thought process. So for years, we messed this up. And the buyers of these big retailers like Walmart and Target would give us a shot, but the consumer at the shelf wouldn't resonate with it. So we'd be in one year, we'd be out the next. We'd have to pay a ton of money for markdowns to help move all the inventory out. And like, we just struggled on for years, like taking this like, like, thank God figuratively, but it felt literally beating each and every year until we finally were like, look, the special sauce with our mission is that it's the repeat driver. It's not the initial driver of purchase. And the, the more that we got that, and for those of you who are watching this on video, like if you want to look at a colossal mistake in consumer packaging, this is what we launched with. And for those of you who, who are not like watching this on video. Yeah, it looks very industrial. Yeah, it looks like you can make. Yeah, this looks like automotive cleaner, like our initial shampoo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you're gonna kind of yeah get some grease off, grease off. <laughs> right, right, exactly, right. Like you can use this, you can use this on like your upholstery, and then use a little bit on your hair. Right now, that may work for mane and tail, but that doesn't necessarily work for us. So this was this is what we graduated to, and that took. It looks like a completely different brand. Like we changed, we changed everything about it. This has won numerous awards. We're very excited about. And then the other thing is, is that like, it's fun to beat multi-billion dollar companies at their own game. And, and that took a lot of time. That took a lot of grit. And that took an unwillingness to give up. Tell me about the spark, uh, that, that pivotal moment. So I heard, you know, you're doing this thing and you heard about the wash and a, like, but there's going to be a moment when you're like, oh, yes, so I'm that's it. Because there's going to be a lot of effort behind that decision. So what was that moment where you got inspired? Oh, boy. So in the initial spark, 
The initial spark was, uh, I wrote my brother an email and I said, Hey, I want to start a company one day. Uh, and he said, that's awesome. I believe in you. What is it? I might come work for you. Right. And I think he was just being nice. Um, but I then went out for lunch and I thought about what are the things that I really want to do? Uh, and what are the things that I think are, are going to make a difference and how can I, I've always wanted to build organizations that, that had a meaningful impact on people's lives. Like that's something that I knew pretty early on in, in university. Uh, so then I was like, well, how can I achieve that being like a 22 year old? And, um, I, I emailed him back. I said, Hey, I, I think that, you know, given what Blake Mikowski has done with Tom's shoes, I think that there might be something really cool with soap and having a one for one model and just being really thoughtful about how we, how we do that same type of model. And that was it. And he was like, that's a really cool idea. We should, we should get going. And and honestly, the initial name for our company was Dave Soap, and thank God that got killed. Uh, so my ex at the time, well, we were on uh, on Gmail where they had like the little chat bar, and we were going back and forth, and she was like, well, what about Soapbox? And I was like, that is awesome. So that was it. That was the spark. Call them. So tell us take us on the journey, right? Um, you So you... You got. You had this idea from the start of like, I want to give back. I want to like work on this one for one model, uh, enterprise social impact, and then you've been growing so fast. So, so tell us just about like. Obviously, we talked about that key moment of packaging and branding, but what's what's really allowed you to scale fast? What were some of the key decisions that you made, or how you operated as a leader? Because a lot of firms struggle. Well, I think. So statistically speaking, co-founded startups have a much uh, bigger survival rate than solo founded. Um, that changes. And then also like the success rate of like uh, successful founders starting their second or third venture also drastically goes up. I think entrepreneurship is really interesting because like any career, you get better at it um, and you start to understand a lot of the uh, pieces of, of a early business that need to come together in order to hit product market fit. And then once you hit product market fit, the question is like, well, how do you scale that? And how do you compete against, depending on the industry or the vertical, like whatever the competition, you know, is, is within that space. Right. So a lot of those are like the statements, but you'd be surprised. I mean, you, you know, Richard, you, you work with a lot of these individuals, people coming from like fortune 500 or you know, whatever it might be, like who step in and start their own company may be an expert in a couple areas, but have huge gaps in other areas. So I think there's something to be said about serial entrepreneurs and their success rate in terms of starting new things. We also talked about like, how does one scale as the company needs different things from its leaders as it evolves and grows up? Uh, or the, the biggest attribute, the biggest thing I would attribute our success to is grit. And also uh, my co-founder and our team. And I think uh, there are two cultural values that we fervently believe in here. Uh, because in addition to running Soapbox, we also are masochists and, and really enjoy pain. So we acquired other brands. Uh, so we run a food company called Bushwick. We run a baby company called Good Nest. Uh, we have a company in Stealth that hasn't launched yet. But essentially, we sell in across all those brands, every major retailer in the U.S., 
which is a lot of fun, a lot of complexity, but it's mostly a lot of fun. The key that I would say is you need to find people who balance your weaknesses with their strengths and vice versa. So my co-founder has done a phenomenal job of, uh, of balancing me with his strengths where I'm weak. And I would like to say the same in reverse. Uh, and then the other really interesting thing is because we've been pseudo work married for like 13 years, he's rubbed off on me. Like, and, and I'm, I am a better person because of having worked so closely with Dan, hands down. I am a, I am a much better person, far more organized, way more process driven, thinking about, you know, what is the end outcome and then working backwards in terms of all the deliverables that need to be done. I can attribute all those things from, from his amazing genius in all those areas, hopefully rubbing off on me. And I think, and I would like to believe that some of that has, has changed or, or I rubbed off on him. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to remind you that my book, Making Time for Strategy, is now available. If you want to be less busy and more successful, I highly recommend that you check it out. Why not head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com to find out the details. Now, back to the conversation. So if you were giving yourself advice, perhaps, or, or another leader, you know, who's early on in this journey, for for that, perhaps it's for the grit side or perhaps it's for this this team. Like what, what practical things would you say? Because it's easy to say, guy, you've got to like have a balanced team and and uh and you've got to have grit, right? It's easy to say those stuff, right? You can kind of read them in any kind of 400 word blog posts sometimes. But what have you learned about how you really do that? What's like a, a lesson you've really had to or, you know, or, or a tip, right? A technique perhaps that you've adopted along the way to actually make that reality for you. I think that one of the telltale signs of whether an entrepreneur is going to make it or not, we already addressed grit. I think that's the biggest pot, uh, in terms of a reservoir of a skill set that they need. But I was starting to say this earlier. It didn't actually go through them. The two biggest value sets we have here are that we look for, we look, we love to work with and seek to hire people who are humble, hungry, and smart. And in that order. And I look for the same thing when I make investments in, in companies is I want that founding team to be humble, hungry, and smart. Uh, and the humility part, and the reason why the humility part, in my opinion, is the biggest is because uh, entrepreneurship, regardless of however smart you are or capable you are, will humble you on a daily basis. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go wrong in every way that you possibly can imagine in finance and operations and sales and marketing and product and whatever. So, you know, does someone have the ability to quickly learn and is someone self-aware enough to realize what they like, what the company needs from them and what they also might need to outsource as well as like build around them to complement what they are bad at? How, how do you pick up if somebody's humble and, and hungry? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of leaders were smarts. How do you do the other two? Yeah, hungry is is just ambition. Is like how fast they respond, how fast you know, how much they want to work, uh, and you know, obviously there's a work life balance because it's a marathon. Especially this this quote is something that I remind myself on a daily basis. Entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. If you're sprinting every day, you're going to burn out and put everything at risk. Um, so you gotta you gotta put your oxygen mask on first. You gotta figure out you know what's the self care that that you require in order to to keep at the the aggressive pace that, you know, your growing company requires of you. But to answer your question directly, 
the thing that I usually find in terms of entrepreneurs uh, that I'm, I'm looking to invest in and or people I'm looking to hire in our team is I, I ask them a very pointed question about failure and I want to know how they've failed. And if they take ownership of it and they say, this is how I failed, like I truly messed up. These are the, these are all the pain points that I'm culpable for. Um, then that's, that's a really good sign. If someone says, Hey, you know, this project failed, but I wasn't in charge and, you know, really, you know, like this really wasn't necessarily my doing like that's, that's the biggest red flag that I usually have in the interview process. And I can say that the people that, um, have joined our team and left our team, or we've had to let go from our team, uh, they've all answered that, that question poorly. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Ownership, you know, I say we all have a choice of ownership or we ignore blame and deny. And uh, the reality is we all do both, right? But there's a tendency. Um, the one I love to get people on are leaders who, who feel, no, no, I'm just Mr. Ownership or whatever. I'll say, well, you know, uh, so-and-so, oh, I haven't had enough time, right? And as soon as you say, I haven't had enough time, you're really ignoring, blaming, and denying, right? <laughs> you might have chosen not to do it, but or whatever, right? But not having, my key point is not having, you know, I didn't have the authority, marketing didn't deliver, you know, I didn't have uh, a clear strategy from senior management, I didn't have uh, a good team. These are all the excuses that we give when we're in, when we're in denial mode, right, or blame mode. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, even like, we'll, we'll address even, for the listeners here, Richard's doing a phenomenal job because he usually sends out a questionnaire to all of the potential interviewees he's putting on the podcast. And this guy didn't fill out any of them. And he sent me a note right before this being like, hey man, I really need you to fill this out. Otherwise this interview is not gonna be that great. Send it to him 10 minutes ahead of time. This is me apologizing to all of you <laughs> that- You didn't need to do that. They didn't need to do that. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, I mean, I think, I think the thing is- There's no speculation involved here. I, well, not publicly anyway, I might do that afterwards. Well, yeah, right. Just put a huge like asterisk because like Dave came unprepared. Uh, so, but, but I think th there is absolutely something to be said in terms of great leaders eat last, right? To take a little Simon Sinek in that. But I think great leaders also fully take ownership, right? And, I, and uh, one of the, I used to be a former educator through the Teach for America program. And one of the things I absolutely loved is... Being a middle school teacher, uh, I think, does an amazing job of preparing you to uh, also manage adults. Because I think emotionally, like, we stop, we stop emotionally maturing in middle school. We just get better at hiding it. So, like, all the fundamentals are there in terms of, like, raw emotions. So, when we had to discipline a kid, you'd pull them outside of the class, right? You'd discipline privately. You'd praise publicly. And the same thing goes for, like, the my theory of like management but the other thing about that is that like one's culpability and ownership right of like how do they not only accept the good right hey this project went really well you were the leader congratulations everyone right but also how do they in part of a group say like my bad guys like i i totally you know fat fingered this and we ordered an extra ten thousand of whatever these bottles or whatever that aren't selling well because I made a mistake, right? And that, and that full ownership of it, like even, 
I would much rather have someone who tells me that they mess up once a month than having someone uh, hide from me once a quarter. Like I would like hundred percent. I want the person who's making more mistakes, but owning it, growing it, and hopefully not making those mistakes again. And someone who's like hiding it from me and uh, not willing to like, to, to fall on their sword. And the, dip, the distinction here is between a performance culture versus a learning culture. A lot of people say, I want a high performance culture. But actually, high performance culture, that only works if you're in like a stable environment where nothing's changing. As soon as you're in turbulence, what does even performance mean? Uh, but it gives that impression of you mustn't screw up because we're high performers. But when we change it to like high learners, fast rate of learning, highly adaptable, um, then I think things shift. It doesn't mean we don't want to create results and value. Obviously, we do. But it's that performance for me versus learning shifts the kind of the mindset quite a lot. Completely agree. Completely agree. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, for the sake of time a little bit here, David. I want to focus on um, how you – let's look at Soapbox. What's it going to look like for Soapbox to multiply its impact <laughs> in the world over the next few years, what would be an amazing outcome for you for, for that organization? Mm. I, I want us to be a household name brand. I want us to, you know, ship internationally and, and take on markets outside the United States and North America. We're currently in Canada and Mexico just a little bit, but like that, the more we sell, the more good we can do. And, and I get super excited because the way our team views our giving is we're not making it possible, right? Like we are allowing everyday philanthropy to take place in just choosing not to buy Dove, right? Like like six inches over from Dove is Soapbox in a lot of different retailers. And that, you know, less than half a foot, well, it's actually half a foot, that half a foot away, like allows you to make a world of difference, right? And is that bar of soap going down the street to a local homeless shelter of which we work with tons and United States, Canada, and Mexico, or is it working in any of the 65 countries that we work with, those 501c3 partners I was describing earlier? Like, that's a ton of fun, but also it's incredibly meaningful that like we get to be the conduit between the consumer making this decision to buy a natural, clean ingredient, thoughtfully crafted, obviously I'm heavily biased, product for herself or himself, but then also the good that they're able to do around the world or down the street. Like that, that to me, like, I want this to be as big as possible. Uh, I, it's so much fun each and every day, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between the roller coaster of good news to bad news, to good news, to bad news. I think that's also a crazy aspect of like where we sit today is like within an hour, no joke, Richard, we're like, Hey, congratulations. You're getting expanded in this retailer. And it's like, Hey, you know, you've been trying to get in this retailer and you know, tough luck. We have to wait till next year again. And, oh, hey, this shipment is going to be delayed another two weeks because, you know, something's happening in Indiana. And, oh, hey, it turns out there's like the return on ad spend on this is doing way better than we forecasted, like all within 45 minutes. And you feel nuts. You, you like, you're like, like, how am I supposed to process all of this? And I think that what I've learned over the years is you become more wise in terms of celebrating the wins what you still need to do, especially for your team, as well as the perspective it gets you to understand like what is an actual loss and what is the setback. 
So, so understanding those and, and, and modest, you know, like, you know, adequately adjusting your own internal dials, uh, to respond to that has been, it's been an interesting evolution or at least within myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that distinction loss versus setback. Tell me about yourself. What, what's it going to look like, David, for you to multiply your own impact over the next few years? If you want to be the leader that does that. For those of you who are listening, I made the money hand symbol. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering what you mean by that. Yeah. So it, it's funny because at the beginning of this, I was just like, don't do it for the money. But money is a power elevator, right? Like the more money that you have, the more that you can deploy. And I think um, there's, a, there's a very big fish investor, supporter, mentor within our cap table. And he always believes that like, look, money in good companies with good people has a huge multiplying effect. It's like, I want to see, you know, you and others, if I may be so bold to, you know, be amongst his definition of good, um, succeed because I think that I think good people with money go out and do great things. Let me, let me rephrase a little bit. I, I completely agree with that money as a leverage, you know, you can use that. Um, and, and normally money does, yeah, multiply. If you've got a good character, good things happen. If your character is less good, less good things happen. Um, the question I really want to get to, though, is like, what's the inner stretch for you, right? So the money is a scalar of what happens perhaps in the business, but who are you going to need to become to be the leader, perhaps, capable of you know, running this international business, right? Allowing everyday philanthropy at a new scale. As we, we, we talked earlier on, right, being the leader that gets from A to B is different from getting from B to C, you know, and from C to D in, in that progression. So as you think about where the business is going to go, where do you need to go? Uh, another great, another great saying I heard from, um, he's a pretty prominent lawyer within Washington, DC, which is where we're based, uh, within the entrepreneur ecosystem. And he's like, a CEO really has three core jobs, uh, like a startup CEO. One, first and foremost, make sure you don't run out of money, right? Raising, fundraising, like that's, that is, that is he, she, they's role, like number one. Number two is you set the vision, the tone, the tenor of you point to like, those are the KPIs that really matter. And then number three is you're the person in charge of who's on the boat and who's not. And that, and that is incredibly important in terms of achieving number two, and then also will drive the results of whether you can actually do number one. So I think those are pretty universal on whether you're, you know, uh, 1 million and like you got your sleeves rolled up and you're doing the shipping and you're doing the marketing and you're doing the sales. And if you're manufacturing yourself, you're probably also pouring the stuff in the bottles, you know, you're doing all that. Right. And then when you're where our stage is that you're less of, of all those things, but you're still very much these three things. So I would say, you know, that, that having a firm hand on the helm and then also being incredibly objective about who's on the boat. Um, and then finally, you know, just steering the financials and making sure that, you know, we have the capital. Thankfully we, we are doing quite well on that, but, uh, that we have the capital in order to deploy and go after the right type of investments and into our growth. So let me check. I understand. <laughs> What I think I heard was that 
there's something there about your how you manage your team that you want to sharpen up or how you bring new people on, up-level the team, something like that. Because again, the question was really, what's the stretch, right? What, like, what's the new capability that you need to build, develop within you if you're going to get to the next level? So I was, I was trying to listen through those three really helpful descriptors. So I was trying to figure out, are you saying that you need to improve your money management? Is it that you need to get better at casting vision? Or is it that you need to get better at uh, building the team? And perhaps there's something else in that. First off, Richard, you are a great interviewer, and I am terrible at answering your questions. So, no, I'm just pressing. I'm just going where I want to go. <laughs> but no, but I but I do appreciate you pushing into it. Uh, the probably the biggest thing that needs to happen is I need to I need to let go of certain things, and I need to allow more of our team to run and run faster and figure out uh, how can we how can we go after the KPIs that we clearly have set. Um, but I think I think any of those three you know buckets, it's like, okay, how do we make this sharper? How do we make this clearer? How do I empower our people and take less things or, or take more things off their plates so they have a clearer goal? Um, but I'm a, I'm a huge believer of you know how do you how do you sharpen the focus? for the team in order for them to say, this is clearly what needs to happen. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm a strategist at heart. You know, my book, Making Time for Strategy, uh, I would believe in this. And Oh, is that the book behind you? Because. Go figure. That's a, yeah. That's my <laughs> <kidding>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, because I believe strategy is a multiplier, because and not strategy is in corporate strategy necessarily, but just in terms of, it being a lens to focus effort, right? To focus attention, to, to focus in on what's really going to matter. And I think, you know, when you bring things into focus, when you sharpen things up, you say, then suddenly the other stuff falls away and you know what you really need to do. It's so easy to have so many things going on. Um, and, then, and I think it's, it's a phase. We breathe it, you know, we expand and then we have to prune. If we don't prune, we lose momentum, but when we prune it back in, and so I can see that that could be the, the next stage for you in your business. Well, David, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I've enjoyed the, the, the discussion. You know, we didn't have all the worksheet ahead of time, but we still, we've got there. Fun. And this is great. I mean, I'm heavily biased, but I hope, I hope your listeners also and viewers also uh, have, have been able to take away some sage wisdom from a, a traveling soap salesman. So, yeah, it's been great. I say I love um, the conversations we've had around around grit, uh, around focusing, yeah, on purpose and not just focusing on money as in, in terms of being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think it's this insight around focusing on quality and not charity, uh, and actually, um, yeah, making sure that you know you compete rather than beg your way to success. Um, uh, I love the quote about beating multinationals at their own game. And I think it's a real credit to you and the team that you've been able to do that, right? And you're continuing to do that. Um, and then I think really helpful insight on, hung, you know, hung, humble, hungry, and smart, actually asking for people to own up, like where we messed up. I think it's a key way of, of identifying whether people have actually got that ownership uh, mentality. Uh, so... Thanks so much for, for this discussion. It's been a lot of fun. And, and thanks for what you do in 
allowing everyday philanthropy. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure's been all mine. So last, I almost forgot, let's quickly do it. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about Soapbox, where do they do that? Uh, probably the easiest, but well, there's multiple different ways. Uh, one, would love to give all of your listeners a 10% off. Um, so if you go to uh, our website, which is soapbox.co, um, just type in impact multiplier uh, and you'll get 10% off your first order. Uh, and then the, the second part is um, you can email us at hello at soapboxsoaps.com or you can follow us on at soapbox on Instagram. Just send us a DM. Uh, I'm just at my name, David Simnick. Uh, you can send me a DM, whatever, whatever works. I love entrepreneurs, especially, you know, people who are just kicking off. And if there's something that, you know, really connected with you on today's podcast and you're like, Hey, I want to go deeper on that. I'm a big believer of paying it forward because there've been not hundreds, but thousands of people who've paid it forward and given us the time of day and helped us start from my college kitchen to the shelves of almost every retailer in the United States. Perfect. That's a wrap. Thanks so much, David. It's been really, really fun. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'd deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.